Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Director of High Performance and Education at USA Football, Joe Eisenman. Thanks for tuning in to episode 135 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I have the pleasure in speaking to Joe Eisenman, who is the Director of High Performance Education at USA Football. So great chat with Joe, really nice guy, um, and a, a, a guy that kind of sits on both sides of the fence with regards to kind of practitioner head and academic head. So it was great to get uh, someone on who's got kind of works in both um, both environments really and it was kind of along the same lines as uh, my chat with Ben Jones at, at Leeds Beckett and I thank, for ben, thank Ben for making the introduction to Joe um, and helping me with uh, maximising this episode and my chat, my, my chat and time with Joe that I've got that I had so in the episode we discuss uh, bridging the gap between um, applied work and research and also Along the lines of, we chatted along the lines of uh, foreign coaches coming into the US and what recommendations Joe would give to guys from the UK and guys from Australia who want to get involved in the US and how that transition may be maximized from them coaches. You know, too often academics are in the ivory tower and, and or in their laboratory, in their academic building. And, you know, obviously applied research needs to be done in the field and in the trenches. So getting the academics onto that playing field or into a strength and conditioning facility and understanding what happens there on a daily basis um, and also being a little bit better communicators with some of the practitioners um, so that they can be on, on the same page uh, with going about conducting this work. So just before we get into the chat with Joe, as always, just want to say a massive thanks to Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard, and Coach Me Plus for sponsoring this episode today. So great to be involved with them guys, two companies that are doing really good things, um, and two companies that I feel who work and deliver a service with integrity. Um, and work closely with their clients to maximize the investment they've got that they've um, that they've made so I'd definitely encourage you to check both of them out but I hope you enjoy the upcoming chat with Joe uh, I would love to have your feedback uh, any feedback you've got on the episode with Joe I'd really appreciate it um, and I will uh, I'll chat to you soon hope you enjoy Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I have the pleasure in speaking to Joe Eisenman. So welcome to the podcast, Joe. Thanks for having me on the show, Rob. Very much appreciated to be on the show. No, it's great to have you, mate. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, just want to give us a little bit of a rundown on your background, um, what you have done in the past and what you're currently doing. Sure. Uh, Maybe I'll start with where I'm currently at. Uh, Currently at USA Football. Uh, which is the national governing body of the sport, focusing on uh, youth and scholastic uh, American football. Uh, I'm the director of high performance and education. Um, I've been here only since February 1st, so about three months into the position. 
was appointed the position to oversee long-term athlete development model and a coach education plan uh, to support long-term athlete development. Uh, prior to uh, coming to USA Football, I spent uh, approximately 20 years in academia. Uh, my PhD is in pediatric exercise physiology, uh, where I focused uh, largely on a lot of different aspects of youth physical activity, uh, youth physical fitness, childhood obesity, cardiometabolic risk factors, uh, and then I guess uh, as a hobby, hobby research, uh, I did work with uh, young athletes. Um, well, during that time, I was also involved in coaching in some aspect, whether it be as a sports coach. Um, or doing strength and conditioning uh, clinics and camps for youngsters. Um, and then in 2012, I founded and directed what is called Spartan Performance. Um, it was It's on the campus of Michigan State University in the College of Osteopathic Medicine. It is a youth sports performance training and research center. Um, it does still exist. Uh, after I left, and I still have good connections there. So, uh, you know, 20, 25-year history of uh, being a scholar and a practitioner in the area of pediatric exercise science and youth sports. So is your current role going to be solely focused on youth, or is it going to go up the age groups as well? Uh, so I guess we should, you know, define youth. Uh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, ba basically the focus is on youth ages, you know, five or six, whenever they first uh, engage in organized uh, American football and then all the way through scholastic, which would be, you know, high school football. So until the age of 18. So this may be a, a really um, stupid question coming from a uh, uneducated when it comes to American football Englishmen, but how does USA football fit in with alongside the NFL? So USA football was uh, actually uh, founded in, uh, I believe, 2002. Uh, and as a national governing body, it falls under the U.S. Olympic uh, committees, the USOCs, uh, national governing body plan, if you will, uh, but uh, supported definitely by the NFL. Um, so for a long time, it's been considered the uh, partner, the youth partner of the NFL. Okay. So USA football kind of stops where the NFL starts? Well, so remember, you know, we have youth football then going into high school football. Uh, and then thereafter, collegiate football, which, you know, the NCAA uh, supports, and then on to uh, the NFL. Um, yeah, so again, the NFL definitely has an interest in youth football uh, from a player development standpoint, but also from an engagement, a participation, and an enjoyment standpoint. So, you know, they can grow up with the game, enjoy the game, and participate um, as a fan as well okay so when it comes to um so you, you kind of keeping the um academic head-on when it comes to your current role is yeah. that is that part of the um is that part of the role okay 
Yeah. So how does that how does that fit in? What kind of things are you doing in yeah. your current role from yeah. the academic side? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think I'll ever lose my academic hat. <laughs> um, you know, I, I just think it's also a way of thinking as well, whether it be you know growth mindset or an evidence based approach. Um, you know, so for example, with our long term athlete development plan, you know, I want this to be based on best practices. So taking what we know from science and from research and being able to implement that at a grassroots level uh, to develop young players, whether it be fundamental movement skills or football specific skills um, or a strength and conditioning aspect, uh, a mental training aspect, uh, what have you. And then as we go along, uh, you know, continuing to research um, and better understand the game of American football and how youngsters participate in it. Um, so, for example, this this upcoming year, uh, we're initiating a, a pilot program with our long-term athlete development uh, plan. Uh, we're going to be testing in approximately eight sites across the United States where youth uh, enter the game at, a, at, a, at the youngest ages in flag football, so non-contact flag football. And then their first experience in the, in the game will be a uh, modified game. So not our, not our traditional 11-player uh, tackle football um, played on a 100-yard you know, field, but instead we're going to be playing on a 40-yard field. Uh, and then player number will be either 6-player or 7-player. And then we're also taking out the special team, so punting and kicking, um, just to you know, keep the flow of the game going. And then from there, uh, as players advance, then they'll graduate, if you will, into the 11-player game. So um, I've been I've been tasked to research uh, this pathway and um, the effects of this modified game, which is very much like a small-sided game, which you know many have been doing in soccer, um, and hockey has been doing small-sided games with cross ice as well. So looking at the effects of it from a uh, physical demands, movement characteristic, um, and also player engagement and um, their experiences and attitudes towards the games. Um, and also getting um, feedback from uh, coaches as well in terms of uh, their experience coaching that modified game and in, in, in this new player pathway. Mm-hmm. So I know this is something we were going to come on to later on, but it links nicely in what you were discussing now with regards to um, the applied research that's going on. And a couple of episodes ago, uh, how many episodes ago was it? Three, six or seven, eight, maybe eight episodes ago, I had Ben Jones on, who I know you've um, spoke to recently. And obviously the, we discussed the things that he's doing at Leeds Beckett. And is, the, is that kind of thing, uh, again, uneducated Englishman, sat here but um is that kind of thing going on regularly in the states uh yeah so it's a it's a great question you open up kind of a can of worms and yeah i had the great pleasure of connecting with ben via skype uh i think we're going to get along quite well and you know obviously his work in rugby uh another collision sport uh plays very well into what you know we're going to be doing with our youth game here as well and uh player development and coach education um but yeah, you know, stateside in terms of applied research, uh, it's fairly limited, um, mainly due to number one, lack of funding, and also a bit of 
unwillingness and collaboration, I think, between sports teams and academics. Uh, you know, we have this term bridging the gap, right, between science and practice. And uh, we, we still have a lot of work to do here in the States related to bridging that gap. I actually recently wrote a paper um, related to the topic as well and, and what, I, what I like to call translational sports science. Um, so sometimes it's not only conducting that research, uh, but also being able to translate that from, you know, the laboratory back onto the field. Um, I think, uh, there's this interest, uh, in, in sports science in a high performance environment and more and more U.S. Uh, collegiate teams and also professional teams are hiring, you know, high performance people, sports science people. <laughs> a lot of the times they're coming from your country or they're coming from, <laughs> or they're coming from Australia just because you guys have created those type of high performance environments. Um, but again, these, these high performance teams are starting to become uh, created here, becoming a little bit more uh, popular, if you will. I think there's an opportunity for us uh, to see the moment on uh, applied research where these sports scientists, you know, they're, they're collecting a myriad of data on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, whether that be GPS or training loads or velocity-based aspects of strength and conditioning. Um, and they're using that information to um, examine the effectiveness of their programs. So they they really are in what I like to call a living lab. Um, you know, it's it's not a laboratory that we often think of when we're conducting research with, you know, people with white coats on taking blood pressures or blood draws or whatever, but, you know, it's it still entails data collection and data interpretation. Um, so I think there's some unique avenues for applied research in, in U.S. sports teams um, if we just start wrapping our head around it a little bit more and, and, and putting some efforts towards it. And I actually like to think about um, this concept that uh, Brandon Marcello likes, likes to discuss, and that's evidence-led practice versus evidence-based. You know, it kind of ties in with the applied research as well, where we always don't have to wait until something's published, peer-reviewed and published, right, uh, where it's evidence-based practice, but we have a lot of practitioners who, again, they're collecting data on a daily basis. They're doing applied research. And so they're making evidence-led decisions, um, even though something's not peer-reviewed and published. So, I, again, I think there's a great opportunity to increase um, to increase our, our efforts towards applied research. Um, maybe just a little bit different way of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So with your academic hat firmly on and maybe putting yourself in a position of a um <clears throat> a sole academic what can what can what could they potentially do as academics improve to help bridge that gap i think first and foremost it's getting in the trenches and better understanding the sport um you know too often academics are in the ivory tower and and or in their laboratory in their academic building and you know, obviously applied research needs to be done in the field and in the trenches. Um, so getting the academics onto that playing field or into a strength and conditioning facility 
and understanding what happens there on a daily basis. Um, and also being a little bit better communicators with some of the practitioners um, so that they can be on, on the same page uh, with going about conducting this work. Um, I also like to use this analogy of in public health. We're doing community participatory research. So if we want to solve, let's say, the obesity epidemic, well, we need to be in communities understanding the day-to-day -day workings of people in that community and help better shape interventions. Because, again, the academics can sit in the ivory tower. They can come up with the best intervention on paper. But when they have to take it out to the field or to the community, it doesn't work because they don't know the day-to-day -day nuances that happen. Um, so again, involving practitioners from the get-go, involving sport coaches and even the athletes to that extent from, from the start of the planning and then helping with the methodology. And then once data collection occurs, you know, analyzing that data and maybe having those individuals help with some of the data interpretation. Um, because again, that's another part of where we break down with the translation is the inability of academics to communicate those findings to the coach or other practitioners or the athlete. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, what could what can practitioners do to to bridge the gap and, and go in the other direction? Yeah, I, I mean, I I think it's a matter of of, of openness as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I I just think we all need to be open about it, don't we? we and we need to stay in our lanes as well. You know, we all bring different strengths to the table. Um, we all see the problem with a little bit different lens. I'm not saying one lens is correct uh, compared to another. But just getting a good understanding of what everybody's role is going to be. Um, and, and, and those practitioners, you know, being open to the academics and, and being able to help, being able to help the, the academics better understand the day-to-day -day nuances of that sports world. And one thing I'd like to touch on just uh, quickly about the um, the kind of foreign coaches, especially from from the UK and Australia coming into the US. What advice? What would advice would you give them, guys, coming into the the environment uh, in the states and how it how it currently is? Yeah, th thanks for asking that question. Uh, you know, it's one I've discussed with my colleagues here. You know, and again, they're they're mostly American practitioners, but I think. I think we're all seeing what's happening, you know, as you mentioned, and I, and I did as well earlier uh, in the podcast, you know, many of these high performance and sports scientists who are now with U.S. colleges or U.S. pro teams, uh, they're coming from the U.K. or Australia. And again, that's given, you know, your, your experiences. You've had great experiences with high performance sporting environments, whether it be in the English Premier League. Um, you know, or in Australia with, uh, you know, um, the AFL um, or in rugby. Um, you guys understand how to use sports science um, within that high performance team. So, you know, some of these U.S. organizations, they understand that. So they're bringing you all over. Um, and the other part is related to educational programs. Um, but I think what's happening um, at least in a few cases, and this is just kind of heard it through the grapevine. Um, but you're, 
the UK high performance folks, the Australian high performance folks are getting over here and they don't understand the US sport culture, specifically that the head coach runs the show. It's a very coach centric environment, head coach uh, centric environment in the US where that, that head sports coach is making every decision. Um, even strength and conditioning decisions and, you know, uh, you know, we're going to lift three days a week or we're going to, I want the guys to lift five days a week or the guys are out of shape. You need to run them more. Um, so the strength and conditioning folks, the sports science folks are, you know, they have to abide by what the head coach says, because again, that head coach is in charge of all the decisions that are being made. And I don't think, you know, the foreign the foreign high performance and sports scientists are really used to that environment as much as, as they are when they, when they get here and they're getting a bit frustrated with it. Um, and the other thing is from a sports science perspective, they may be, you know, collecting, you know, data, whether it be GPS or, you know, readiness or what have you. And the head coach is really not listening. You know, they're collecting the data, but nothing, no actions are being taken upon it. So they really feel like their skill set is not getting used to uh, its potential or how it should be. And I think that's becoming frustrating as well. And so, you know, I don't think it's any secret that we, we, we've seen this where, you know, uh, UK or Australian sports scientists are, they're leaving some of these positions. And I, I, and I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, my comments that I made uh, about their frustrations, not using their skill set and having to really cope with this head sport coach centric environment that we have in the United States. So do you think, do you think this uh, kind of flurry of people going over will continue into the States or will it be a, a short term thing until the kind of, uh, I suppose the fad goes away and people in the U S realize that there's actually people on the ground in the U S that can do them kind of jobs or is it not there yet? Uh, I think it's going to continue because I mean, y'all are very well trained and you have great experience. And, you know, there are some of us in the U.S. who have those capabilities as well, but our university system is really not set up to train um, integrated sports performance specialists. You know, and part of that deals with the focus of large American universities being, you know, so much on physical activity and public health because that's where all the grant funding is. Um, so, you know, the, the, the training of, you know, some of these individuals, uh, to occupy these jobs in the U S really is not there. Now, of course, we've had a little bit of a rebranding, if you will, of strength and conditioning coaches. Um, you know, sometimes that's giving them a GPS device and all of a sudden calling them a sports scientist. But as we know, it goes well beyond just the GPS stuff, but you know, you're, some of the you know better educated and uh, the better educated strength and conditioning coaches in the U.S. and um, some of those who want to continue increasing their knowledge in sports science, you're finding them going back to do PhDs as well. So I think we're gonna have maybe a little bit of turnover where we do start employing more American sports scientists, but I, I don't think it's ever gonna stop. Uh, you know, foreign. Uh, sports scientists or high performance folks from coming to the U S just because of the opportunities as well, because 
you know, the major sports, uh, you know, NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball. It's, you know, we just have a plethora of opportunities in, in a high performance environment. Just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Joe. Hope you're enjoying part one. So I just want to draw your attention to episode 121 with uh, Dr. Ben Jones at Leeds Beckett University. So if this topic with regards to um, the applied and the uh, academic side of things and bridging that gap, if that is something you're interested in and interested in knowing more about, definitely check out episode 121. Um, all of Ben's details on there, I know he's happy to chat about this and obviously I know given this episode that Joe has reached out to Ben with the, the kind of similarities in their work. So definitely check that out. Um, and I just want to say again, massive thanks to the sponsors in Valve Performance Makers of the Nordboard and the guys at Coach Me Plus over in the States. So thanks to both them guys for allowing the podcast to continue as it does. So I hope you enjoyed part one and I will get back straight back to part two. Hope you enjoy. So I just want to move on slightly and just start a little bit of a discussion on uh, growth and maturation. And I think a good place to start would be um, just maybe give an overview of your work in that area. And then we can kind of bounce off that and, and get into the uh, nitty gritty of it. Sure. Um, you know, my, my work in the area really stems from um, when I started my PhD. Uh, you know, I purposely sought out to work with the best person in the area. So um, I, I, I applied to work with Dr. Bob Molina. Um, so for those who aren't aware, he literally wrote the textbook on growth, maturation, and physical activity. I mean, the textbook is called growth, maturation, and physical activity. The man has 350 plus publications in the area. Um, so that, that's how, you know, it all started. I had an interest in young athletes as an undergraduate and even during my master's studies, but, you know, was still doing basically traditional exercise physiology, but as I began my PhD, I really wanted to hone in on um, oxology or the study of human growth and maturation. So, you know, it was during that time um, that I guess I really cut my teeth, if you if you say, <clears throat> on the topic, um, and then just you know began applying it to different settings. You know, one is in an athletic setting, but another aspect is in you know how physical activity develops, how it changes with uh, during childhood and adolescence, and then looking at, you know, a range of physical performance variables, and then also health-related fitness variables, such as aerobic fitness and strength, uh, so on and so forth, which kind of also led me to my work with um, FitnessGram, uh, which is the official youth fitness testing battery in the United States, um, and also known fairly well throughout the world. Um, as a youth fitness testing battery. Nice. I've just, I've just wrote, wrote one thing down to uh, to remind me, and I might as well bring it up now. One thing that's going on over here in the in the UK, and it's kind of got a bit of, well, quite a bit of publicity recently, I think, even though it's probably been going on years, but as it, as always, it takes the, the media quite a while to, uh, to catch up with what's actually going on, and that's biobanding, yeah. um, especially in youth soccer. Um, what's your, what's your take on that? I mean, I've, I've spoke to a couple of people who are, who are uh, reasonably like a little bit skeptical of it. Um, and it's probably getting a lot more coverage maybe than it, than it should be. Um, 
and it's something that often maybe comes naturally without this big hoopla around it. But I'd love to get your take on on Bioband in itself. Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought it up because I'm actually I'm part of that big hoopla as well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> actually, my my colleague. Uh, Dr. Sean Cumming from Bath University. He and I were graduate students together at Michigan State University. Sean was studying with Dr. Molina as well, um, and so I'm, I'm I'm actually part of the English Premier League growth and maturation study that Sean oversees, and that's kind of where it's getting a lot of attention. Is you know some of these clubs are holding these biobanding competitions. So again, instead of using age group as our uh, you know, cut points or how we're grouping athletes to compete against each other, whether it be 12U or 14U, what have you, um, we're grouping them by, you know, their maturity status. So obviously we're all very well aware that some kids they mature earlier than others and others are quote unquote late bloomers. Um, obviously age has a big impact, um, on the growth process and maturation and, you know, I, what I like to say is a 12-year-old is not a 12-year-old is not a 12-year-old because you can line up, you know, 16, 12-year-olds and you have varying degrees of body size and maturity status. And that has a big impact on their functional capacities as well, uh, particularly strength and speed. Um, so in order to level the playing field, so to speak, with, within that age bracket and, and during the adolescent growth spurt, um, what if we have these youngsters compete against equal maturity age rather than chronological age? Um, you know, I think what we're finding is the early maturing boys, when, when you put them in, you know, the 12-year-old age group and they're an early mature, they typically dominate the game because of size, strength, and speed. And now when you put them against other early maturing boys, now they have to start relying a little bit more on technical and tactical things. And on the other side of the coin, the late mature, you know, a lot of times, you know, they get, uh, they get selected out of sport that, that, you know, select for, um, size and speed and strength. Um, just because they can't, um, so to speak, keep up with the bigger early maturing boys. So now when they play against all the late matures, and let's again, let's put them in a, you know, 12 year olds and they're a late maturing 12 year old, they're playing against other late maturing 12 year olds. Now, you know, uh, they're not dominated by the older, they may get more touches, they may get to show their skill a little bit more. And they can also have to bring out some of those other leadership skills. Because um, if you think about a group of 12-year-old boys, and you have the early matures, which ones are the ones who usually lead Who usually lead the group? You know, they're a little bit more vocal. Uh, they take on some leadership capabilities. So by allowing the late matures to play with other late matures, um, it can bring out some of those, you know, leadership skills as well. And allow that youngster, you know, not to be pushed around and pushed off the ball, but to really use their skill a little bit more. And so there's, you know, a uh, paper coming out, um, I think, in the next few months. Uh, Dr. Cumming told me that it shows some real positive uh, results 
on on this biobanding concept. Fully well aware, you know, that some people, you know, don't like it. I mean, I don't think any of us in the world 100% agree with anything, do we? We're always gonna there's always gonna be naysayers. So my my question off the back of that was, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but these kind of biobanding matches and and tournaments are not every week. They are in kind of uh, crowbar into the fixture list. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So they'll usually play during periods, you know. So they they may have a biobanding tournament on a weekend. Um, the other thing that some of the clubs have been doing are, uh, you know, two week training periods that will be biobanding training periods as well. Um, so they'll, you know, instead of grouping all the 12 year olds together and training with just 12 year olds, they'll group them, you know, early matures, average matures, late matures, and they'll train for a two week period. And it's also having implications on strength and conditioning as well, because one thing that, you know, uh, we're finding is that. You know, certain times during the adolescent growth spurt, uh, youngsters are a little bit at a increased risk of of, of injury. Um, recovery rates um, can can be uh, a bit altered during the adolescent growth spurt. So it's having some implications on uh, the strength and conditioning uh, process as well. So if it was, I'm just kind of playing devil's advocate here, but why why isn't it done more often if it is kind of so key to the development of these young boys and girls? Yeah, I mean, I think number one, it's you know we've always done it this way, so why should we change? You know, change is always difficult, um, but I, I think that's one part of it, and you know, it's it's I don't want to say it's a relatively new concept because actually this idea was really introduced in 1908 by Compton and looking at maturity related differences and in, in functional capacities and you know even throughout the 70s and 80s Molina and uh, Gaston Boonin and you know other you know uh, elder pediatric exercise scientists were kind of advocating for maturity grouping uh, but you know, it, it's kind of coming back into vogue again. So it may just take a little bit more time for people to catch on. And I think the other thing is, you know, I mentioned evidence-based, you know, practice. So if a few more papers come out on it showing its advantages, you know, some people may, you know, start implementing it a little bit more just, you know, because there's some science behind it as well. And again, as mentioned, you know, this isn't uh, something that's going to happen you know, all the time. It's, you know, period periodically uh, putting uh, group grouping by maturity status rather than age in, in, in the training groups and or competitions. Nice. So one thing I wanted to, well, last thing I wanted to discuss with you, I know you've got um, an appointment in 15 minutes, so I need to be swift. Um, and that's the <clears throat> kind of making football a better game. I'm, I'm careful not to say safer. Um, and I'd just like to get your view of the kind of future of of, of football in the U.S. In, in the U.S. Um, from a USA football point of view. Yeah, so I mean, I'm glad that you brought up better rather than safer because we always, you know, get, especially nowadays, are criticized because of the whole concussion aspect of it. And we obviously need to be conscious of the health and safety of the youngsters uh, for sure. Uh, but I think, you know, it's just, it's just starting now with, 
you know, some of the work that I'm going to be doing over the next several years, and that's trying to lay down a little bit more evidence base for how we go about developing young players um, when we even start tackle football. Um, so, you know, we're really at the forefront of this. Um, you know, if you look at the research base of American football, it's really thin. You know, most of the stuff that's out there is on injury and concussion. Uh, we know very little about the, you know, physical demands, the movement characteristics, um, even, you know, getting into any collision aspects and, you know, all that stuff is, I think it's, it's going to lend to um, providing us with the evidence that we can start coming out with best practice guidelines um, and, and really formulating and narrowing down our long-term athlete development plan. So I know you mentioned earlier the obviously the link between yourself and Ben with the, the kind of collision stuff. Is that something that USA Football are will be looking at doing? Is actually tapping into other sports that um, that are similar in that sense? So yeah, I'm you know excited to you know begin this relationship and collaboration with Ben Jones. Um, I reached out to Ben. Uh, you know, number one, he's involved in another collision sport, rugby. Uh, but also, you know, two other things as well. One, he's interested in translational research or, you know, bridging the gap. Uh, and then, you know, the third is is uh, work with youth rugby and in the academy system. So there's a lot of nice links between, you know, myself and, and, and what I'm trying to accomplish at USA Football and what Ben is doing. Um, you know, I think one thing is in American sports, in, in our big three, baseball, basketball, and football, and, you know, I'll obviously specifically highlight football is we enjoy watching the game. Um, we can describe what happens in the game, but in terms of actually researching and documenting it, we do a fairly poor job. You know, again, outside of injury rates and concussion rates, there's relatively little known about American football. So, again, reaching out to Ben and, and some of his colleagues, and I'm going to mention uh, Shreve Hendricks, who's doing some outstanding work on the science of tackling. Um, which obviously is a huge element in American football as well. I think establishing this partnership and moving forward to use some of the research methodologies that they're employing in uh, the sport of rugby, bringing that to American football, I think is really going to benefit how we shape, grow, and evolve uh, the youth game and even you know upper levels of, of American football. So very excited about um, you know fostering this relationship with Ben on collision sports, on youth development, and on, you know, the science of collision sports. Obviously, there's several other people around the world um, that I'm beginning to reach out to who uh, are also involved in, you know, sports science, strength and conditioning aspects of collision sports, whether it be uh, Australian rules football um, or other, other collision sports that are played. Why do you think it is in the States that the popular sports that you guys watch daily is not no one knows a lot about it from a from a kind of research scientific point of view yeah uh you know again let's let's look at our researchers in the united states they're at major universities those major universities are getting grant funding uh from federal agencies such as the national institutes of health or the american heart association american diabetes association uh we're, we're so invested in our chronic uh, disease problems over here, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, 
that research dollars are thrown that way and we don't support sports science research, um, you know, from a grant funding perspective. Uh, and that also, to a certain extent, it drives what academics study. Uh, very few academics in the United States really study sports science. And those who do, typically they're at smaller universities. They have a heavy teaching load. They don't have a lot of time to participate in sports science research. I think that's one reason why. Uh, and I think the other reason why uh, is, and I think I spoke about it earlier, about we have this coach-centric environment. And these coaches, you know, they're the authority of everything that happens in that sports organization. And many of them really don't care. Some of them don't believe. You know, they frankly have said, I don't believe in the sports science stuff. I have my eyes. I can see what's going on. And I'm going to trust my eyes. And not to say that we shouldn't trust the coach's eye. Because I think this go, also goes back to the translational sports science stuff, like this integrated sports performance team, you know, the group of sports scientists and practitioners and the coaching staff, they all have to work together for the betterment of the athlete. And we need to listen to the coaches as well in the coach's eye and help them solve those problems. That's the role of the sports scientists. But, you know, forming that environment in, a, in the American sports culture is challenging. I think we're starting to make some strides in it. I hope that continues. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, twofold, uh, response to your question. Number one is there's not a lot of funding nor emphasis on sports science. And number two, um, the general environment of science to practice is not really set up in most organizations. Mm -hmm. Nice. Well, I know we're coming up to the 40 minute mark, so I'm just going to round up a little bit and just say thank you very much for your time for coming on and, um, and giving your insight into into the questions that I've fired at you. But just before I let you go, I just want to ask you uh, where people can keep up to date with what you've got going on, social media, contact details, that kind of thing. Yeah, certainly. Uh, so social media on Twitter, Joe underscore Eisenman, uh, E-I-S-E-N-M-A-N-N. -N. Uh, people can feel free to uh, contact me via email as well. So again, J. And then Eisenman, E-I-S-E-N-M-A-N-N, -N, at usafootball.com. Be happy to hear from listeners, uh, share your insights, comments, questions, and concerns, and you know, continue the dialogue around uh, the science of collision sports and translational sports science. Sounds good. Thank you very much, Joe. Really appreciate it. And I'll, we'll speak to you soon. Okay, great. Thanks for having me on the show, Rob. Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning in to episode 135 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Massive thanks to Joe for giving up his time to chat, to the pod, chat with me on the podcast. Um, I know he's a busy guy, got plenty going on, so I really appreciate his time. Again, if you wanted to hear more about this, more about this subject with um, bridging the gap between applied and uh, academic research, definitely check out episode 121 with Dr. Ben Jones at Leeds Beckett University. So, last but not least, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your chosen podcast player uh, and keep up to date with every episode as it goes live on the Pace Performance Podcast. So, hope you enjoyed episode 135 and I will speak to you soon.